Welcome to the Open House Podcast. Conversations exploring life, faith and hope with Stephen O'Doherty. Well, earlier this month, the National Museum of Brazil went up in flames, a spectacular fire. And if you look at the graphic images that have come out since, there is virtually nothing left. This museum was founded in 1818. It's the oldest scientific institution in Brazil. And in fact, as it turns out, one of the largest and most renowned museums in Latin America, um, one of the oldest in the world, in fact, with some absolutely invaluable artefacts, irreplaceable artefacts. That included Lutzia, um, an 11,500-year-old skull, considered one of South America's oldest human fossils. This whole issue about the the world's natural history being kept in these institutions that are so vulnerable to things like catastrophic fire raises some very interesting points. Why do we value the past, in fact, so much? I think it's a wonderful thing that we do. And what are we doing to protect it? Both these and other questions we'll discuss with Professor Robin Sloggett. Now, she's the academic, historical and philosophical um, chair at uh, the Cripps Foundation Chair of... of, Start again. Robin is the Cripps Foundation Chair of Cultural Materials Conservation at Melbourne University, the director of the Grimwade Centre. Well, Robin, welcome to Open House. Well, thank you for having me. Are we any closer yet to knowing if anything of value, real value, was saved in Brazil? Um, I think it's still... The jury's still out on that. I've been desperately trying to look at... At anything that um, might say what's been saved, but most of the press out of it is talking about what's been lost, so it's not very um, gratifying, is it, to have that sort of report? So, yes, I think it's massive. It's not it's at all gratifying. Life. Isn't it interesting how something like this universally is regarded as a tragedy? What does it tell us about our affection for the past and for the things that build our culture? Well, I mean, it says two things, doesn't it? It says we don't invest enough in it because it happened. It also says when it does happen, we treat it as a catastrophic global disaster. So I think we have a very mixed response to to our past and, and how we... You know, invest in its future, actually. We'll talk a bit about Brazil and then broaden out to some other disasters. But, um, <laughs> well, yeah, it's yeah. an ironic laugh, not a happy one. Um, yes. why, why was it this old, this wooden building? And it's one of the five oldest institutions of its kind, I gather. Mm. Um, mm. But didn't have yeah. sprinklers. I mean, how, how does that no, even happen? No, evidently. Evidently. Well, I mean, there's been a, you know, a couple of um, things that have led to a perfect storm, haven't they, really? So financial situation in Brazil, I mean, there's been lots of discussion about that. There was money that was um, approved in June after something like a three-year discussion. It was approved for a proper fit-out and kind of disaster mitigation response to the threats that were um, identified in the building, including the fire. Mm -hmm. The money was approved in June, but hadn't been actioned. Um, There's been reports back since the 50s about this exact issue, that there was likely to be a fire in the museum. Um, Money had been spent on the new um, football stadium, $540 million, and not been spent on the museum, despite Mm. all those reports. So... You know, there's a number of things that have just come together, Mm. I think. Um, 
And this is where we were. And what's ironic and sadly so is that the money had been approved for it to mm, be it is sad. fitted yes, it out. Is. You know. Now I mentioned that it was. It's one of the, the five oldest uh, museums of its kind. One of which is the Australian Museum in Sydney. That's very mm, interesting. That's right. Now mm. the collection there, of course, is natural history and other things. But mm. <laughs> as a child, I remember going and being thoroughly bored. I must admit, um, <laughs> but looking at drawers full of moths. Um, it's very different there now. I've got to say the Australian Museum in Sydney is one of my favourite places. It's a fantastic collection. It's but, fabulous. So these are scientific institutions. It's, these are not just places where you go to see stuff. Um, these are scientific institutions where important research is done on specimens that go back a long time. Was Brazil just like that? Mm, Brazil was like that and more. Um, so the, the institutions, these institutions, the natural history ones, are important because... They also chart the time that what was Indigenous knowledge was moved over into Western knowledge. Uh-huh. So they they reflect the great collecting expeditions. Many of them, as was the case in Brazil, hold type specimens. So uh-huh. I don't know if you know what they are, but they're, they're like the base classification specimen. Uh-huh. So if you're classifying a particular plant, then the type specimen is the first specimen that you refer to as as the um, benchmark. Which makes them kind of irreplaceable, precious history, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, and about a quarter of the Brazilian um, lace bug types were held at at the um, museum in Brazil, so they're all gone, and then they're not in the world. And given what's happening to the Amazon and across South America generally, you know, this is irreplaceable material. We will never have that back again. Does it mean that the science will suffer? I presume we've got, well, plenty of digitised information now that will allow scientists um, to to, uh, still work with the same information. Um, Well, you know, I don't think digitisation cuts it, really, I think. (laughs) Because the thing is that science is evolving all the time and the sorts of interrogations we could do on this material 20 years ago is very different to the type of information we can pull out now. Mm. And, you know, the rate that scientific instrumentation can work down at that nanometer level and in Mm. very new ways, um, there's all sorts of, you know, data mining that we can continue to do with these collections and really fruitfully, but not if they don't exist anymore. Well, that's really interesting. So if someone finds an, another lace bug, shall we say, what mm. they can't do now is to go back and look at even, for instance, the DNA of the original type specimen because that's now gone. That's right. Mm, that's right. So, you know, questions of evolution or whether global warming, warming is affecting um, mutation, you know, they're the sorts of current questions, let alone questions we want to ask of those specimens themselves. You know, you need that comparison in order to know where you are now and what kind of decisions you might want to make into the future. So it's a massive loss. Yes, well, so given, as you say, that the methodology of investigation is changing all the time, and uh, DNA is, is a perfect example of that, um, and, and nanotechnology, and I note that they've just unveiled a new... A microscope, I think, in Sydney this week that can look down at the gaps between atoms in a diamond. I mean, that's that's pretty mm, incredible. It's so extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. So, it's so not, imagine doing that with a lace bug wing. You what, know what? Yeah. What hidden treasure can you find there? Yeah. So yeah. literally irreplaceable. Then you'd have to ask: Is the world's natural heritage um, 
in a in a great and safe place at the moment? Overall, mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know the answer to that question. You know, clearly, in some cases, yes, but generally, no. I mean, I don't think that we invest enough in our museums. Mm. You know, clearly, mm. I'm biased, mm. but mm. this okay. is a case in point, isn't You're it? Thanks, <laughs> but it, it is. I mean, these are. You know, the, the science is one thing. There's the cultural material. There's understanding of species development. Um, there's just so much that's been lost. Mm. And the thing is, I think with... I mean, I've been pondering this a bit, that there's been a a movement to endow great institutions which hold everything. So rather than distributed collections, we've built large monolithic institutions that then hold the type specimens or, you know, whatever, yeah. uh, the national collections. Yeah. Um, and that's a risk, of course, because if everything's in one place and something happens to that mm. place, then it, it's all missing. So there is some benefit, I think, in thinking about distributing things broadly or making copies that could be housed in, you know, co- Aboriginal communities, for example. So in Brazil, there was a massive... Um, linguist, linguistics collection, phenomenal collection, all gone, oh. entire in its entirety. So that's endangered language. It's it's language that has disappeared completely. It's recordings of people's um, singing um, performance oh. that they don't do anymore. A lot of communities um, use what's in museums to rebuild their yes. um, cultural identity. Well, I was just thinking so, of our own Aboriginal peoples yes. when you were speaking. Is there, are our collections of of those languages are they are they in a safe place? Um, well, interestingly, there's a um, organisation called Paradisic, which is digitising um, all of the um, linguistic records so that they can be distributed and available and accessible. Mm-hmm. So that's a digital format. But you think of the original recordings, um, many of those are at risk because there's only one and they're in an institution somewhere or they may not be. So there, there's a risk in the model, I think, that we've mm-hmm. developed. Our guest on Open House is Professor Robin Sloggett. She's from the, well, the Grimwade Centre for Cultural Material Conservation, but so many other things, so many other strings to your bow. Uh, you're at the University of Melbourne. You hold the Cripps Chair of Cultural Materials, and I gather you, you're rather one of the top conservators in the world. So we're fortunate <laughs> to have... We're fortunate to... Well, thank what, you for that accolade. I'm, yeah. <laughs> that's what Annie I told should, me, my I should producer. argue, but I'm, I'm going to let it go through to the keeper. Good for you. <laughs> um, how do you get into conservation at this level? The, the knowledge that you must have amassed over the years would be amazing, I think. Well, you know, now I'm going to completely advocate for the profession because mm. you can come in it from various ways. So we've been talking about entomology. You know, if you're interested in conserving insect specimens, then a previous degree in entomology is fabulous. I did art, history and philosophy. Mm. Um, we've got students who have done dentistry, zoology, chemistry, uh, archaeology. So conservation is absolutely interdisciplinary. But then you have to study conservation. So it's a two-year master's program at Melbourne Uni. Um, And that involves 
hands-on practical skills. So people love conservation when they do it because if you're interested in craft skills, you need highly honed craft skills. You know, you can't pick up a scalpel, scalpel and attack an object with a, a hand that's not absolutely under control. Mm-hmm. Um, but also you need the science. You need to be strongly informed by science so that you understand how materials degrade and how they'll interact with, with each other. And then you need the cultural context. So you need to have that background in some other discipline so that you can contextualise um, the object that you're working on in its broader kind of cultural and social framework. So it's a fabulous profession. It's really um, extraordinary and you, you meet the most wonderful people. Uh, look, something we often explore on this program is, is this notion of redemption uh, or restoration. Is, is Do you have a sense of restoring um, the past or bringing meaning to, to life by looking at the artefacts of the past? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely gets to the core of it, I think. So I think the thing is with um, societies, if they don't have access, which is a big tragedy in Brazil, if they don't have access to their cultural and scientific and historical records, then they can't interrogate their past. You know, they're not in a position really to understand their past in the way that someone who has... If you think about a family genealogy... If you understand your family tree, and people are dedicated to tracking down their family tree, Mm. the reason they do that is because they want to know who they are. And it's the same, I think, with our broader cultural um, kind of heritage. We, We want to know how we got to this position where we're making these decisions and thinking in this way. And then we want to use those objects and that knowledge to then frame how we're going to make decisions into the future. So it's a cultural continuum, but you can't have that continuum if you can't relate to the past. Mm. So is the fashion changing a little? We, we've been through a really important period, haven't we, of saying uh, a lot of these specimens that were collected and then housed overseas should be returned to their original communities. And I'm thinking about um, the remains of Aboriginal peoples, for instance. Mm. Mm. But does an in- episode like Brazil make the community say, well, there's real value actually in having some of the larger, well-resourced institutions of the world um, the Smithsonian's and the rest of them, uh, containing, you know, a, a record of things that have been collected around the world. Oh, yeah, I think that's interesting two ways, isn't it? I mean, mm. I, I think there is value in ensuring that materials kept in well-resourced institutions, but then you have an added problem, which is it becomes um, dislocated mm. from its cultural context. So then its meaning becomes less able to be accessed. Mm. So the material itself might be safe, but it means less. So it's, it's a trade-off, isn't it? Well, um, it is, yes. <laughs> and we yeah. look, as, even as we learn more about the science behind uh, investigating things, we talked about uh, entomology, um, I'm thinking about our family history. You mentioned family history a few minutes ago. People that have photographs will know how quickly they can degrade if they're not kept well. But Mm. even now, the the tapes, the magnetic tapes on which early um, recordings of our children's first steps or whatever might have been made, the Mm. videotapes, the time, the clock is ticking on those as I understand it. It absolutely is. And it gets worse if you go into the digital sphere. Get worse, not better. Why is that? Yeah. Um... 
Because I think technology has run away with us to some extent. All right, so you wouldn't um, find too many floppy disk readers around anymore. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't, would you? No. But I bet people still have floppy disks somewhere in the bottom of their drawers. Uh, absolutely, with, with family records ago. on them. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Mm, that's right. Well, what's, the, what's your world doing about that? I'm not saying it's oh, entirely your problem, you but what is, what is happening? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Where um, we've got a subject that I'm running at the moment, which is um, about um, new media um, and methods of documenting and preserving, recording, uh, making decisions about whether you can um, migrate something to a different format or whether, you know, the cultural meaning of an object is in the way that it's been formatted. So if we reformatted all the content and didn't worry about the hardware then we would lose the story about the te- technological development of hmm. the virtual world. I thought of but, that. Yeah, but, on the, but it's virtually impossible to maintain all the hardware because it's changing so quickly. And even if you maintain the hardware, the software versions change. So you then have to you know, protect every software version. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a complex problem, and we're working with um, ACME, Australian Centre of the Moving Image, on that at the moment. Um, and it's interesting, I think Australia's uh, kind of at the forefront in thinking in this, and I think part of it is because um, we've got so much material that's in digital format. And in, if you think about Indigenous communities, much of what's been recorded there is on iPhones, mm. you know, easy and contemporary mm recording mechanisms that are changing all the time. Every version, every year there's a new version mm. and they don't speak to the old versions when you're three versions back, you know. So massive massive problem and an increasing problem. What's that going to do to the way we regard this type of history in the future? Are we going to miss slabs of it? or will, I mean, will we end up with representative samples and no rich um, collections? Well, there's two, there's two answers to that question. I think one is how do we determine, determine what's significant? Hmm. So even if we had the technology or the ability, the capability to save everything, we wouldn't want to do that because how would you ever access it? How would you ever know how to penetrate it? <laughs> this is my problem um, with the thousands of family photos that are now somewhere on <laughs> many different versions of the uh, World Wide Web. <laughs> yes. All, all called JPEG two three five two three six two three seven two three eight. Yep. <laughs> yep. Exactly. So it's about front ending the process. I mm. think you know, making sure that people have the the tools so that when they're loading up the photographs, they will face recognise and can label them for them, or you know, those kinds of things. Mm. I think we haven't been very good at developing, but that's conservation too. If we can't sort and access something there's no point in conserving it because mm. it becomes impenetrable you mm, know mm, so mm. wow professor robin sloggett is our guest from melbourne university and the grimwade center for cultural materials conservation I just want to finish up by talking to you about the wanton destruction of cultural heritage so the sort of thing we've seen in the middle east primarily as the result of the iraq war the syrian war um you know acts by mm, isis mm. and others it, it seems it's beyond tragedy. I can't even bring my mind to think about just how awful it is to have museums and 
cultural collections completely destroyed. Why? Well, because, precisely because they contained a cultural meaning. Mm, well, that's right. And, I mean, the, the world has a history of that, doesn't it? You know, it's, 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 a, it's a contemporary issue, but it, it goes with um, conflict. All the, all the conflict zones have have a history of cultural identity being destroyed. Mm. So it's something that's in our DNA, isn't it? I mean, I, where <laughs> we started this conversation, it speaks to how significant cultural material is. Mm. And if you really want to um, decimate a population, then you're not just interested in taking the people out. You actually want to get rid of their ability to come back mm. as people. So mm. I think it, it cuts very deep to the root of um, of removing, you know, evidence. Uh, and what it is to be human, I, I would think. So when you go Absolutely. into a situation like that and, and you're the one who's having to make a decision about whether something is A, salvageable, or B, important enough to be salvageable, or both, uh, how does that feel? Um, well, it's always done in consultation. So I think, I mean, how does it feel? I, we talked about redemption. Mm-hmm. You know, it is this, this ability to see something at, that's at the kind of brink of um, not being able to be brought back and then bringing the skills, which for conservation are your practical skills, but they're also your your skills in being able to assess significance and to be confident to make a decision. Um, and I think redemption's part of that, isn't it? It's part of a confidence. And what's critical for conservation is being confident because you've explored your decision-making really broadly with all the stakeholders. So I, I think there's a... It, it's a very positive story to be able to do that, even though hmm. it's often in devastating circumstances. Yes, Oh, I get that. Well, thank you for what you do, and uh, thank you for speaking with us. It's been a really interesting conversation. It's been great. I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> Me too. Professor Robin Sloggett from Melbourne University. Uh, she's got a, an Order of Australia. She is the Cripps Foundation's Chair of Cultural Materials Conservation, and she's the Director of the Grimwade Centre for Cultural Materials Conservation. Um, gosh, what an interesting job. I've never really thought much deeply, really, at all ever, as a matter of fact, about conservation in that way. Um, But I think it would be exciting if you're interested in art, uh, cultural materials, music, music, ethnicology, uh, any of those fields, um, and you want to work in something that's worthwhile, maybe you ought to consider conservation. Take Robin's course, for goodness sake. Uh, Her research interests include programs in cultural materials conservation, focusing on the materials and techniques of artists, particularly in Australia and Southeast Asia. But um, she is a world, one of the world's leaders in this conservation. Discover more Open House podcasts at openhousecommunity.com.au.